in case you weren't watching the TV or reading any news site late last week, Christopher Luxon went back to work at McDonald's for a day. Now, it's very unlikely that he was there due to his peerless skills making burgers, which by his own admission, were actually quite poor, despite having worked there as a teenager, maybe got a little bit rusty while managing Air New Zealand. This was quite clearly a publicity stunt. And look, no, I mean, fair play. These are carried out by politicians of all stripes the world over. Jacinda Ardern, for instance, she's no stranger to being guided around a workplace in a high-vis vest. Uh, but this was perhaps a little bit more egregious than most, mainly because Luxon actually went to the trouble of flipping the burgers himself and operating the drive through I feel like I even saw some photos of burgers that he'd made on yeah. Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying to, I mean, maybe this is drumming up votes. Like he was on the drive through saying, you know, welcome to McDonald's. This is Christopher Luxon. Can I take your order, please? Which is, I mean, I have never, I've never actually got a name. I've never had a drive through uh, attendee actually give me their name before. So no, that's different. Right. So if it was a publicity stunt, do you think it paid off? Like, how did media handle it? Yeah, I wouldn't say it went completely without a hitch. So, and perhaps what was an oversight by whoever was handling Christopher Luxon's calendar, the McDonald's visit came the day after National voted against fair pay agreements, and that legislation was designed to give a pay boost to lower wage earners, which would, of course, include many people that work in the fast food industry. So on one news, Benedict Collins, he punished Luxon for the timing of the stunt, uh, giving the government a pretty lengthy right of reply in this snippet in his one news package. Just yesterday, National voted against fair pay agreements opposed. aimed at lifting the incomes of low- and middle-income earners like McDonald's workers. And was he surprised to see the Leader of the Opposition join them this morning? Uh, Mr Speaker, yes, I can confirm that I actually met with a number of McDonald's workers uh, last night who were extremely p- pleased about the passing of the fair pay agreements yeah, yeah. legislation. That's Grant Robertson asking a question to Michael Wood. Now, over at News Hub, Amelia Wade, she took the same tack. Her story, just like Benedict Collins, made note of Luxon heading to work at McDonald's straight after voting against legislation that was warmly welcomed by the union that represents McDonald's workers. And that's all in the story. You can watch it. But I just want to play its introduction, well, the introduction from Amelia Wade. So here's how that went. Hi, welcome to McDonald's. It's Chris Luxon. Can I take your order, please? And would you like a leader of the opposition with that? Christopher Luxon back at his first job building a Big Mac, and he's loving it. Singing. (laughs) A bold move. Bold editorial move, particularly when it comes to the 6pm news. I have to commend it. I I love it. I'm I'm loving it. Uh, great, great stuff, including a bit of singing in there. I also I think commend- you should have sung that. Actually, hated. I'm not going to sing it. You're I've retired. Musician. I've retired. <laughs> okay. I commend also NewsHub's online headline. It was, "Would you like fair pay with that?" Oh yes. Do you think these journalists might have upped the negativity though on their stories? We've just got a text in saying at least Chris Luxon had a proper job at some stage. Uh, you know, yeah. Do you think there was much respect, or are they not really showing that? Uh, I I think I think it was. The way that they handled it probably was mainly out of like professional self-respect. I mean, it was such an obvious kind of setup that maybe they they didn't exactly want to um, just go along with it entirely, and and they wanted to point out that this came this day after fair pay agreements was or they tried to vote it down. I think the timing was just too impeccable not to point out. I mean, um, I, I I think that the media probably treated it with appropriate scepticism. Now, I'm not too sure. 
that National nevertheless will be disappointed with how it went. There was lots of pictures on the news, on websites of Luxon in his red uniform. He posted no less than three times to Instagram about the day. All of that got good engagement and accomplished the aim of humanising him, even if the party had this unfortunate situation of voting against higher pay for McDonald's workers the day before going to work at McDonald's. Now, I'm sure that Labour will be seeing this and they'll be trying a lot of the same tactics next year with Jacinda Ardern as the general election approaches. Yeah, interesting. Also an easy story for the political journalists too. Yeah, right. Good visuals. Great 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 visuals. And they get to eat a burger. They get to eat a... It's it's perfect. You get the camera in the the restaurant. You get the sound grab of him taking the order. And and one political journalist who's talking about the benefits of these kinds of of, uh, humanising publicity stunts has been One News chief political reporter Jessica Much Mackay. And here is what has proved to be a very controversial snippet of her conversation on RNZ's Morning Report last week on Friday. We are encouraging him to try and um, do some more photo opportunities. We had that um, boxing um, scenario a few weeks ago and people need to get to know him. Hang on, is that a political journalist trying to give PR advice to a politician? Yeah, it kind of sure sounds that or way. Or like admitting it even. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's pretty direct. The way it's phrased, is, it sounds exactly like that, right? So at the very least, this was pretty poorly phrased. It sounds like someone who has an interest in Christopher Luxon's success rather than Justin holding him to account. And that's been the primary feedback both to us at Media Watch and from what I understand to RNZ. And so just an example of one of the emails we got. Uh, I'm quoting here, quote, is Ms. Mackay also a member of the opposition leaders media slash marketing team? Surely that would be an unmanageable conflict of interest. Disappointing and disheartening. She needs to explain herself. Now, yeah, okay, that's 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 a pretty good example of the tenor of the feedback. Uh, I'm not sure that it's quite as scandalous as it appears just from the face of it. For its part, TVNZ's actually put out a statement, and they say that Jessica Much Mackay wasn't speaking about TVNZ per se when she said we. She was speaking to three other political journalists at the time, and she was thinking of the media more generally and how covering the person behind the policy is part of the role. And I think another thing that's in play here, and this is something that's been noted by Dylan Reeve and a whole bunch of other journalists, is that she might have been motivated as well by self-interest. So the desire to drum up those good pictures and get good TV content rather than doing necessarily PR for Lux. And so from talking to people that are actually connected to the political press gallery, this is kind of an ongoing concern, particularly for the TV journalists. And they're in talks with not just national, but the, well, the government and particularly Jacinda Ardern's office about you know getting leaders to engage in these kinds of photo opportunities because the political stories are so boring. If you mm. think about them, it's a whole bunch of people screaming at each other, like standing up and down in green seats in the parliamentary debating chamber and saying mean things about each other, and it gets kind of a little bit tiresome. So I guess that that's something that they want to uh, get away from. So it's quite likely our journalists yearn for some footage of politicians making soft serves at McDonald's or panning cows at ag days and that's not so much bias as just wanting their own jobs to be easier and better. These things, these opportunities though, they don't always go well for politicians. I feel like I can think of a couple. There's, there's, a, there's a risk in yeah. these photo opportunities, isn't there? Exactly. So, you know, as advice goes 
it's not just like, this will work for you, it'll be totally fine, Christopher Luxon. Case in point, Christopher Luxon actually engaged in one of these photo opportunities and then got criticised because he'd voted against fair pay agreements the day before. And and so, you know, this isn't the only one of these. You might recall David Shearer holding up a dead fish in a parliamentary debating chamber that basically ended, that was a terminal decline for his tenure as leader after that. Uh, you had Don Brash trying miserably to get in and out of that stock car during a, an election campaign. Hang on, go back to David Shearer. Why was he holding up a fish? He held up a... Okay, I do not remember what the no. debate was about, but his leadership of the opposition was on the rocks. He held up a dead fish. It was in a debate about fisheries or something like that in Parliament. Of course, it was a really bad idea. I, I, people will remember this. You can text in about this. <laughs> yeah. Don Brash and the stock car, that's also a very comical photo. And another one like that, Mike Dukakis in the US, he was a US presidential candidate, he posed in a tank and he's a very diminutive man and they think that the images of him trying to pretend to be something he wasn't, that cost him the 1988 US election. Look, I'm doing a history lesson here. My point is that these don't always go that well. And I mean, having said all that, the way that Jessica Much McCry phrased things on Morning Report was pretty troubling. And uh, despite all the potential explanations given by TVNZ and others, including me just now, it's still troubling. And, and from talking to people in the gallery, even if it's not biased, there might be another potential less palatable thing at play here. And the, this is someone that said, you know, journalists are genuinely hoping that the 2023 election is closer than the 2021. That's a professional concern. They want more people to be excited by the election. They want more eyeballs on their analysis. They want that kind of thing. Now, that's kind of, you know, you can understand that on a professional level, but it's, and it may not be direct political bias, but it's certainly straying from a journalist's core function if you're, if you're wanting a, a close election, right, rather than just necessarily covering people without fear of favour. Now, that's all I kind of have to say about that. I just, I'm ranting for a long time. But no, and I'm biting my tongue for yeah. a long time too. Yeah. It's so interesting. Did anyone get really upset about, going back to Chris Luxon at McDonald's, did anyone get upset that he went to McDonald's rather than a local cafe who's been struggling through COVID? I, I didn't see any of that criticism per se. Okay. I didn't see anything like that. Um, but, I mean, I do, I, it was a pretty on-the-nose kind of stunt. And uh, the reaction from Jessica Much Mackay also got a lot of criticism, and I just mm. want to note that she is she is not the only RNZ guest somehow this week that's sort of given some potentially troubling insights into their professional conflicts. So uh, I just wanted to highlight this as well. This is PR consultant and former ACT Party press secretary Trish Sherson on Nine to Noon's political panel on Monday. Yeah, so just a quick declaration up front. We did some work with Business New Zealand on the way through a fair pay agreement. Now, that's her saying that she worked with Business NZ on fair pay agreements before doing a segment on fair pay agreements. Now, you might remember during the debate about fair pay agreements that Business NZ was <laughs> quite a major player and was really hotly criticised for making misleading statements, including they altered a document to make it look like New Zealand's proposal on fair pay agreements had been condemned by the UN when it hadn't been. Now, I'm unsure whether Sherson was involved in that part of the campaign, uh, but it sure seems like something that would be worth clarifying for the audience before just going on into your segment. And that clarification wasn't forthcoming. They mentioned it again, but it was never really said exactly what Sherson's role was. And she went on to compare fair pay agreements to vaccine mandates of the business world. That's a pretty strident position. Mm. Just one of those things where, uh, you know... It, 
this is a difficult bias, a professional conflict to manage and probably needs a little bit more disclosure. Yeah, of course. A few texts are coming in. Apparently it was a midget car, not a stock car. Oh, it was a midget car. I'm very sorry. It wasn't a stock car. It was very small, and that was part of the problem because he's <laughs> he's quite a, a lengthy man. And, he is a tall man. Yeah, he's a tall man, and, and it was a very small car, so that makes sense. And someone said that at least uh, Shara didn't hold up a live fish. That would have been very cruel. Yes, exactly. I mean, let's look at the silver linings. Silver linings. <laughs> I like that from the RNZ audience uh, looking on the bright side. Someone suggested that Brash walked the plank as well. Do you remember any PR stunt of that? Oh, I do vaguely remember. Same. Walking Send us more information. Two one oh one. Um, now, you've got a little bit of a trifecta. Yeah, I did. This is a late addition to my script, and, and I hate to do it because I, I like to say that I have a, a you know, that the, the detail is my nemesis. I sit next to them in the RNZ office, and I, uh, you know, I try to compete with the detail podcast, but they've got a great episode. Um, and it's about Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown, his unusual media strategy. Now, you might know that he's eschewed media interviews in his first four or five weeks on the do- on the job. He's turned down just about every single one. And The Detail has a really interesting new episode on that strategy, and it even features a clip of The Detail trying to get an interview with Wayne Brown. And so here's how that went. So we thought we'd have a go ourselves at getting that elusive interview. And surprise, surprise... Ooh. Hello. Hi, is this Wayne? Who's that? Hi, Wayne. This is Bonnie calling from RNZ's The Detail Podcast. How are you? Can't talk to you. Hello? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's the details. Excellent producer, Bonnie Harris. She, she's great, um, gamefully trying to get an interview with the mayor. And that was Auckland Mayor. Yeah, that was Wayne Brown. Yeah. Uh, a few other texts have come in about Jessica Much McKay. Uh, someone suggests that she's not actually a Chris Luxon supporter. She's personal friends with the PM. Her husband is the PM's bodyguard. Right. So you never know what she's I doing. don't. I have no, no idea. Neither. I'm just have, reading our messages. I've, I'm just keeping completely silent. Yes, of course. What else has been happening in the world of media? Now, uh, social media, actually, how about in the world of social media? So um, uh, this is, uh, you might have noticed that Elon Musk bought Twitter recently and also the, the Facebook is kind of imploding. I don't know if this is, so shall we go with Facebook first? You know, so the head of Meta, formerly Facebook, he's been sinking billions of dollars into trying to set up the metaverse. Hasn't been a great success. Apparently uh, Meta's own uh, workers won't even use Horizon Worlds, which is the platform that they set up to help people live on the metaverse. Uh, it's too buggy. They don't like it, even though they're working on it themselves. Another platform that they set up on the metaverse that was meant to sort of help them buy and sell virtual real estate. It's called Decentraland. Great name. Rolls I, off the tongue. I got invited to that. Well, yeah. Someone sent me a link to that. I it cost them what... $1.2 billion, and apparently it had 38 active users. 38? At one stage. Oh, God. So not great. Not really. Not great return on investment. That kind of makes, um, what was it, um, Rachel Glucina's gossip site for, yeah, what was it, Scout. That makes that makes that seem like a great investment. Anyway, oh, despite that. What a many voice joy bringing that, that up. That was an old three venture, anyway, yes. under Mark Weldon. Really deep cut on that one. Despite that, I mean, the company says it still plans to keep spending $80 billion on the metaverse in 2022 fiscal year. So now uh, more and more media, I just want to say, are speculating that this metaverse disaster could hobble or even kill meta. Who's making that case? So Vice, 
uh, has published a piece headlined Facebook's monopoly is imploding before our eyes. And I'd encourage people to read it. It lists off all the failed products that they've launched recently. I mean, they've tried to compete with Amazon and Substack failed. This failed to keep up with their main competitor, TikTok with Reels on Instagram, which isn't that much of a success. And the core service Facebook, they say, you know, Vice describes it as feeling like a bloated piece of garbage. <laughs> now, that's, it's being rejected en masse by teens in the US and in places like New Zealand too. So this metaverse is what Mark Zuckerberg is pitching as a new original product that will help it recover from its succession of flops. Uh, it's not working. Vice describes him now as a weirdo obsessed with lighting cash on fire in pursuit of being the premier place to play virtual ping pong with a heavy computer strapped to your face. And that's a devastating critique, but somehow kind of accurate. And this isn't to say that Facebook will be irrelevant. It has billions of users, but Vice kind of sees it uh, charting a path to becoming just another company rather than, than, than a world-shaping monolith. And even a few years ago, that would have been kind of unthinkable. And that would be good news... Because Facebook has dabbled with allowing its users to incite genocide, damaging democracy, kneecapping the media, all that sort of stuff. It would be good news if all of the other tech companies around it were a whole lot better, which doesn't seem to be the case. Well, perfect example. Speaking of which, Elon Musk just took over Twitter. And several commentators, in fact, we had a series earlier on tonight, are making the case that it might also be his undoing and the undoing of Twitter too. Yeah, potentially. Uh so that, that's that's the big contention. One thing that's less in contention, maybe, you know, The Verge, The Intercept, they've both made this case compellingly that, that it may be bad for the world, it may be bad for Twitter, but one person that it's definitely going to be bad for is Elon Musk. <laughs> and so The Verge's headline is, Welcome to Hell, Elon Musk. The Intercept's is, By Buying Twitter, Elon Musk Created His Own Nightmare. The first sentence of that letter piece, by the way, Elon Musk now owns Twitter. We need to take seriously the possibility that this will end up being one of the funniest things that's ever happened. Why do they think it will be so bad for him? You know, this is, yeah, you think, oh, I've bought Twitter, it's great. Uh, essentially, owning Twitter comes with a panoply of tough decisions, all with tough trade-offs, and any option he takes will make a whole bunch of people mad at him. So if he actually wants to make money, he's going to have to please advertisers. Advertisers don't love having their ads placed along Nazi hate speech and weird misogynistic screeds by people with the username at Bob 987134586 or something. So making money, in that case, means doing a bit of moderation. But doing some moderation will immediately aggravate the army of people called Bob 13568724 or, you know, Lord Regent Crypto Jack or whatever that see Musk as this kind of golden free speech god and facing up to commercial reality will dull his luster in their eyes and he seems to prize his status as golden free speech god. So that, that, that's two options before him, make less money or diminish your reputation with your biggest fans and making less money that might means selling shares in Tesla. That's his real source of wealth. And he might have to do that because, uh, well, Twitter actually doesn't make any money. It turned a profit in 2018 and 2019. That were the only two years that it really did so. And uh, is currently shedding many of its power users. And that's defined as people that tweet three or four times a week. So, you know... Already Musk has come up with one proposal to address the lack of money, making people pay $8 a month to be verified. That's a little blue tick next to your name. You might have one, Charlotte. I don't. Oh, I don't either. No. Okay, so you receive benefits from this verification tick, like being verified, but also having, you know, receiving priority in tweet replies. Your replies will come up before other people's. And it hasn't gone down all that well because paying $8 to verify yourself 
and receive priority and replies will mean that a whole bunch of bad actors will pay $8 and then get their really uh, potentially misinformation, disinformation, or just really horrible views up uh, and at the top of Twitter's feeds. Do we know yet what option he'll take? Well, what option do you think he'll take? Like on content moderation versus making money? I, I think it seems like he wants to sort of walk this tightrope between making it more liberal, free speechy, mm. but also not driving away the advertisers. And that seems like a very difficult proposition. I think he'll do stuff like maybe allow Donald Trump back onto the platform, allow a few more things. Yee? Will he let Yee back oh, on? Ooh, that's, that, even that's a bit of a tough one, isn't it? Maybe. Yeah, I know. Mm. Uh, maybe, maybe, but but also maybe he also doesn't want it to become into this what he calls a you know a free speech hellscape. He's written this kind of mewling letter to advertisers saying, "I'm not going to do anything goes. It's not going to be a hellscape. Don't worry." So there are still going to be some kind of rules involved here. It's going to be a difficult balance, and many people think he can't strike it. Will it impact New Zealand at all? Do you think? Well. The, I mean, in 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 the wider sense, yeah, because online disinformation under that kind of system is a lot is going to be a lot easier to spread. Mm. So that affects all of us. I mean, it also has impacts on stuff like the Christchurch course. That was our response to the March 15 massacre in Christchurch, which was perpetrated by a man whose views were shaped by online disinformation, misinformation. And so far, Twitter apparently has been cooperative with trying to cut back on violent extremist content. That's the real central call of the Christchurch call. Mm. Uh, in a press conference earlier this week, you had Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern acknowledging that Elon Musk Musk's Twitter takeover may kind of change that that stance. So here's that. My hope would be that he would stick strongly to the principle of transparency, uh, because that is one of the things that he's claimed that he is focused on. Uh, we are too. Algorithmic outcomes is an area where we need more transparency. We need more research and we need more insights uh, into the way that people's online experience is curated. So I'll use that as our starting point, um, but it's fair to say we are in a bit of unknown territory at this point. Yeah, not exactly entirely hopeful stuff there, right? No. Unknown territory. So, you know, I think even Musk would agree that cracking down on threats, direct calls to violence, that 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 makes sense. But the Christchurch killer, he wasn't just motivated by... Yeah, there's someone saying go out and commit violence. It was on online conspiracy culture, and it was centered around stuff like the so-called white genocide theory, stuff like that. Uh, now, violent extremism is obviously the most extreme possible expression of allowing that kind of disinformation to run rampant on social media and in people's kind of minds. And I think it's notable that the SIS recently shifted its focus primarily to what it calls anti-authority extremism here at home. So that stuff like that was present in the Wellington Parliament occupation, for mm. instance. You know, it rates the country as being at a medium risk of being targeted by a terror attack. Uh, but that kind of violent extremism isn't the only result of that. And a new... Do, uh, result possible, I mean, and a new doco screened by TVNZ last night by Justin Pemberton called Web of Chaos makes the case that our society is being changed in dangerous ways by social media misinformation. I'm looking forward to seeing this doco. What does it say about the social media platforms and what they're doing to our society? Yeah, there's a few good clips. I, I, I've chosen this one. This is uh, Dr. Sanjana Hatatua talking about uh, sort of the overarching issue. Uncertainty, anxiety, anger is the purpose of disinformation and misinformation. 
It's an internal cancer that rots society from within. So that's, I guess, his his thesis there. So earlier in the doco, he, he explains that that anger spreads through social media algorithms again, which prime people for it. Algorithms remote, they reward anger and they re, they reward uh, just strong emotions over over nuance and over grey areas and all that sort of stuff. And so he compares social media companies to a DJ. They control the mood of the crowd. But instead of getting people to party, they're kind of driving them to the alt-right or to write those weird misogynistic screeds on Twitter. And so in the doco's eyes, that has grave consequences. And first off, it could provoke violence like it did in Christchurch or at the conclusion of the occupation of Parliament, but it also puts our political systems under pressure. We've seen that, obviously. And some of the people that are involved that speak on the doco, Dr. Kate Hanna, uh, for instance, or uh, Lisa Ellis of Otago University, they make the case that New Zealand's small, comparatively transparent system may be hackable for bad actors intent on undermining trust in our institutions. And that doesn't have to be a political party. It could just be a general tenor of uh, anti-authority sentiment or something like that. I guess um, all this makes... uh, or, or just distrust in, in the mm. sort of fundamental uh, pillars of our democracy. And so all of this makes what Ardern was talking about, transparency on algorithms, a pressing issue for democracies. And so he's hoping that Elon Musk and our new tech overlords see things the same way. As I said, it doesn't look all that hopeful. Hayden Dunell's in for Midweek Media Watch. And Hayden, speaking of optimising for conflict, you wanted to highlight some alternate views and perhaps surprising views from within the farming sector on whether farmers should have to pay for emissions. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I just thought this was interesting. If you read a lot of the media coverage, you'll pretty much think that farmers universally despise the idea of paying for emissions, their own emissions by 2025, as the government has proposed. And we had another groundswell protest recently featuring farmers who were extremely opposed to the idea. Over at News Talk ZB in the Herald, the former farmer turned commentator Jamie Mackay, he's called the idea virtue signalling on the global stage. He said that farmers haven't reviled a government this much since the days of David Longy and Roger Douglas. And now, now uh, this is pretty sort of extreme rhetoric. And so I thought it was interesting to see the editor of Farmers Weekly, a magazine which purports to go into the letterbox of every New Zealand farmer every week, uh, sort of calling out what he is. Uh, it's called, the guy's called Brian Gibson. He describes his arrow leadership from people in the farming community or, or people who want to be listened to but don't want to listen themselves. And he calls for more compromise and communication and explanation and different groups explaining to each other their positions and trying to come to an agreement on the way forward. Um, now, <laughs> I just, yeah, I thought that was kind of nice. I'd like to speak to him actually on the show at some point. But as, as I mentioned, uh, that kind of nuance doesn't necessarily sell and it's not exactly rewarded by social media algorithms which prime people for exactly the opposite. Still, it's nice to see part of the media trying to counter that effect. Hayden, you know, I was quite interested, <clears throat> moving on, that those Instagram influences that were captured in Iran, they haven't really had so much coverage on the news. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, what, yeah, I, what, what we seem to have had is actually the media agreeing to quite an unusual blackout on coverage uh, to not risk these people's safety. And look, I haven't followed exactly how that went down, but I just want to point people to 
um, a podcast by NZME's Katie Harris in The Loop. And, yeah, she's uh, sat down with uh, David Fisher to talk about why uh, the missing influences weren't really covered and what their situation was. And so this is quite unusual that, that mm. the media actually agrees to not talk about it, this, this kind of thing. And the government also didn't talk about it and weren't as strong on Iran as other countries were when they were crushing protests in favour of women's rights, that kind of thing. Hey, can I um, mention yes. one thing as well that I think is a very shocking media sin from a... Uh, it was by a journalist uh, called uh, Charlotte Ryan. What? And she, she? Yeah, I, she <laughs> tweeted something, oh. I think, earlier today saying, huge announcement. Uh, hu- what is it? Huge, huge, huge gig announcement. Huge gig announcement coming tomorrow. Yeah. Sorry to tease. Yeah. I'm teasing. And wouldn't tell us who it was. You can't just do that. I did it. I think that that fails a lot of journalistic tests. You know, you're meant to keep your audience informed, you know, be open and honest and transparent. Look at this. This is like, this is like, what is it? It's um, Kim.com's um, announcement during that oh, election all over again. Please don't put me in the same bucket Moment as, of truth. Please don't put me in the same bucket as Kim.com. That, I'm, just just a, I'm just a very excited person, an excitable music I don't even know if I'd call myself a journalist, but (laughs) I get very excited. And to be honest, when you see this band tomorrow that is being announced, you go, no wonder Charlotte almost wanted to tell the whole world. It was. It's quite torturous for your followers to see that kind I know. of thing, and, and then, then nothing further. Of, I know, and then a lot of people are saying, "Is it Depeche Mode? Is it all these?" And I can't even comment on you, whether it is. Well, I just wanted to put you on the spot now and say, "Look, this is Media Watch. You're being Media Watch right now. Will you tell the audience of Midweek Media Watch who exactly is coming to news is going to announce their gig in New Zealand tomorrow?" You'll have to wait till the seven a.m. embargo, and then I'll I'll forward you on the press release. You, I should do the full morning report and say, you're not answering the question. <laughs> Hayden Tanel, you know my vibes. I get so excited about gigs. It would be like if your band got together, I'd help hype it up. <laughs> I appreciate it. I, I, maybe, maybe that would be a bit much, I think. But um, no, I think the other thing, though, is tweeting something like that. I must admit, I did it without really thinking, which I don't think you're supposed to do on social media. But now I feel really bad that everyone thinks it's someone massive and they might not be actually as big as they think it is. Oh, okay, so it's more someone that's important to you. I'm glad that we're we're getting somewhere here. <laughs> no, they're I'm big so, to a lot of people. Like, I can't say anymore. Okay. I can't say anymore. I've signed NDAs and everything. Okay. But I got to interview them, and that's why I'm excited about it too. So maybe the interview was amazing, and I came off like on a high. Anyway, enough about me. Hayden Danell, thank you so much, and um, I promise I won't send any teasy tweets again. Okay. Well, I, I as long as I get to interrogate them live on air. <laughs> of I'm happy course. With them.